You may be seated. And as the children are dismissed for Children's Church, I want to welcome you this morning if I have not met you. My name is Chad Donahoe. I'm the interim pastor at Grace. And this morning we are going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So please turn in your Bibles if you have them, 2 Samuel chapter 9. And as you are turning there, let me pray for our, our time in the Word together. And we'll take a prayer, we'll take one of Paul's prayers, this one out of Colossians chapter 1, and we'll make it our own. So let's pray together. Lord, as we come to your Scriptures, I pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to you bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthen us with power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And help us to be a thankful people, Father, because you have qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You have delivered us from the domain of darkness. You've transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So in light of the beauty of the truth of that passage, of that prayer of Paul's, pray that you would strengthen us, encourage us, challenge us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So 2 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, I'm your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Makur, the son of Amiel, Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Makur, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba and Saul's servant and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, grandson shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a younger son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem 
for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. And together the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord longings forever. As I've thought about this being my last sermon at Grace, my plan is to essentially uh, wrap up the last five or so months of my preaching here. So for about the next seven minutes, I'm going to give kind of an overview, past five months, but it sets us up for this passage, I hope. So if you recall, starting, oh, last December, I started a series on the minor prophets. And what we focused on a lot, a lot of our time during those minor prophets was God's covenant love, his covenant faithfulness. As I mentioned over and over, to the point where my hope is that it will haunt you, like in a good way, all the days of your life, is this, this covenant statement, what many call this formula, repeated over 20, or roughly 25 times in the scriptures. This covenant formula, I will be your God and you will be my people. God's promise to be faithful to secure his people to himself. And again, as we think about um, our faithfulness or God's faithfulness to us, a word that should jump in our brains is covenant. And our passage this morning is about a covenant faithfulness. If you also recall, a few Sundays ago, it was on Easter Sunday, that I, I mentioned that the following week I was going to Colorado, the church that I'm going to be part of, going to that presbytery to be examined by that presbytery. And presbytery means it's a group of elders and pastors in that region. So they were going to test me on fit for ministry, Bible knowledge, understanding of sacraments and theology and all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, I mentioned that uh, if I, I think I mentioned, uh, at least in one of the services, that if I fail, my plan B was to be a farmer, but um, because it just sounds intriguing. no disrespect to anybody who's a farmer because I bet it's really hard. But I, uh, I passed, so no plan B at this point, which is good. Um, but anyway, they did ask me a couple questions that I'm going to ask you this morning. So here's the first one. They did ask me, can I name the minor prophets? I was like, yes. <laughs> and if you recall, back in December, I said I was going to quiz you on this. And I have at least once, and we're going to do it again, and you're going to make me happy. We're going to do this. Ready? Uh, and this is just a brain warm-up um, to get ready for the sermon, actually. But the minor prophets are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Yes. All right. Uh, the second question they named, or the second question they asked me, can I name the covenants with chapters? So here's what I want to do, because the answer is yes. Uh, but the question is, can we name the covenants, but understanding it's not just to pass a test. Can we name them and understand the grace of God behind these covenants? Right? It starts with this covenant with Adam in Genesis chapter 3. So if we recall, right, Adam sinned against God. But God established a covenant with Adam and this covenant of grace that there would be one later who would come that would crush the head of the serpent. We know that one as Jesus, obviously. But then 
after Genesis 3, we see this sin of the garden spiral out of control to the point where Genesis 6-5 tells us that wickedness of man on the earth was great and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God brought judgment through a flood, but God established a covenant with Noah and this promise that he would preserve humanity. Next thing you know, we come to Genesis chapter 11. And what happens in Genesis chapter 11 is the people, after the, after the flood and God preserved people, they began to build a tower into the heavens called the Tower of Babel. They were uh, living in disobedience to God and they were seeking to build this tower to glorify themselves. So what God does is he scatters them into nations across the, the face of the earth. And then in the next few chapters, we see Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17, God establishes another covenant. This is a covenant with Abraham. And this is a covenant promise that God will bless Abraham, that through him will become this great nation. And they will be a blessing to the nations, is the call and the promise. Then, it is true that God's people grow right into this great nation, but they find themselves at the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus in Egypt, enslaved. So what does God do? The scriptures tell us that God remembered his covenant. We see this in Exodus chapter 6. And then we see this language. He remembered his covenant in God's promise that he would be their God and he or, yeah, he would be their God, and they will be his people. And we see this covenant extended in Exodus 19 through 24, that God will draw near to them. Then we see God continues to lead his people, but then the people start desiring to be like the other nations. They want a king just like the other nations. And so, indeed, they reject God as their king. They want a human king. They go with Saul, but then what does God do? He then removes Saul, but establishes a covenant with another king. That king would be David, with the promise of an everlasting throne. And when God established the covenant with David, things are going pretty well in the kingdom at this point. But it's about to get really bad, and indeed it does get bad as God's people prove to be faithless over and over and over, sinning against God over and over and over, and God sends in the prophets to encourage God's people to be faithful, to warn them what will happen if they lack faithfulness. But then the prophet Jeremiah makes this announcement, Jeremiah 31. It's the sixth covenant. It's the new covenant that God will establish an unbreakable covenant with his people it will include the forgiveness of their sins. And we see that covenant perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. Again, the heart of this covenant, this refrain throughout scriptures, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I like how one of my professors at, in seminary, Dr. Williams, put it in his book, As Far As the Curse Is Found. He says, I am the one who keeps promise. I'm the one who is always faithful. I'm the one who is there for my people. I'm the one who is here for you. 
I'm the one who acts on your behalf. I'm the one you can count on. So how does God secure his people? How does he act on their behalf, so to speak? This would be uh, the last three sermons I preached leading up to Easter. The way God shows his covenant faithfulness is by the way he acts throughout the Old Testament and into the New, especially through raising up the three offices of prophet, priest, and king. God's covenant faithfulness is played out through prophet, priest, and king. And just think about God's grace and his faithfulness through these offices. As the prophets, you could say they represent God to the people. They were, the prophets would reveal God's heart, his character, his love, his law. They would show the way of faithfulness for God's people. Okay? Then there's the priest. You could say the priest represents the people before God. The priest would offer sacrifices to atone or to deal with the sins of God's people. Again, we see this perfectly, perfectly fulfilled with Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on the cross. And the last office of king, the king was to govern and guard God's people in righteousness and according to the law of God. See this perfectly with the one who followed David who was greater, namely Jesus. So, with all that fun background, now we come to our passage, 2 Samuel 9. And note that God's covenant with David is two chapters before 2 Samuel 9. It's in 2 Samuel 7. If you recall, God, I see that, I hear Bibles flipping to check me. Yes. You don't have to necessarily turn there, but yes, God establishes his covenant with David. And with that, if you recall, God, uh, the people selected Saul, but God, select, uh, God rejected Saul, and God chooses David. Why did God choose David? Well, 1 Samuel 13, 14, David is referred to, or this is a reference to David being a man after God's own heart. And with our passage this morning, we're going to see not only the heart of David, but behind that, what we're really going to see is the heart of God in this story. So this story of Mephibosheth puts on, it puts flesh on covenant love, covenant faithfulness. We'll see this through the, the life of Mephibosheth. But before I dive in, I just want to say this. If you ever have sneaking doubts of God's goodness, of his care, of his kindness, you have doubts, will he really come through for you when times are tough and, and, and it's really, it really matters? If you ever have feelings of insignificance, shame, worthlessness, it's just not good enough, this one's for you and for me. Because what I pray we will see this morning is the loving kindness of the king. And I'm not really talking about David, right? The one true king. So as we come to chapter 9, verse 1, God has established a covenant with David, 
And David is now secure on his throne. And here's what he asks. Chapter 9, verse 1. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may pause? Okay, don't read further and pretend like you don't know the story. So if you were in the context back there in the day and you heard this question, if, if there is still anyone left of the house of Saul, that's King David asking this house of Saul, his arch enemy, right? Or at least from Saul's perspective, David, the arch enemy, um, that I may, how would you fill in the blank? The blank would be filled in that I, that I may kill. Because here's what we need to know about the culture of the day. We could call it um, the policy manual for kings or the playbook for kings, depending on what excites you more, policy manuals or playbooks. But anyway, um, step one of this playbook would be take the throne. Step two, assess any threats to the throne to deal with them. And that would be step three, would be secure the throne by dealing with those threats. And one of the ways to secure your throne if you were a king is to kill off all the sons of the former king so there could not be a revolt against you. So, what does David do? Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? So the plot thickens here. Okay, let's quickly review the history between David and Jonathan. Long story short, so King Saul had a son, Jonathan. Jonathan had a Saul, Mephibosheth. So if you're following me, Mephibosheth is Saul's grandson. Now Saul was the first king chosen over Israel right before David. And again, Saul was the people's choice because the scriptures tell us he was tall and handsome and the people thought that was good. So they put him forward as the king, but he's not God's choice. According to the scriptures, man looks on the outside appearance, but God looks at the heart. Saul was not a man after God's own heart. In fact, we know from Deuteronomy chapter 18 that the kings were essentially to always keep, if I could say it this way, always keep the law on their laps. Sitting on the throne, the laws before them. They were to follow the law, know the law, obey the law. Saul did not put the law on his lap, so to speak. So God rejected Saul. David is anointed king. And David continued to grow. He's anointed king, but not installed as king yet. So David continues to grow in favor with God and with the people. You know, things like slaying Goliath only helped his cause. And the people began more and more to cheer on David's name. And at this point, Saul becomes very jealous and threatened. So recall the checklist, right? Take the throne. Saul did that. Check. Assess threats to the throne. David is growing as a major threat. Check. So deal with the threats. And so um, Saul began his personal campaign of trying to kill David on at least two occasions. David is playing music for Saul, and Saul picks up a spear and chucks it at him to try to pin him against the wall. Like, yikes, right? And at this point, Jonathan realizes that, yes, 
God is blessing David and that his own father, Saul, is wacko, right? So Jonathan and David make a covenant. This is 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14, that Jonathan says to David, if I am still alive, meaning if I make out of this without my dad killing me, he goes on to say, show me the steadfast love, okay, steadfast love, that word, Hebrew, chesed, word for covenant love, right? It's faithfulness. Show me steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David. So Jonathan is saying, when you become king, deal kindly with my household. And as the story goes, Saul, Jonathan are in a battle against the Philistines. They both die in that battle. So we're fast-forwarding now to our passage where David is secure on his throne and he asks, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show the kindness? So let's read in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there anyone Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I might show kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there's still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. So, the drama intensifies. David asks, is there anyone? And indeed there is. It's it's the son of his beloved friend, Jonathan. But note Ziba's words. The first thing he says, he is crippled in his feet. So this backstory of Mephibosheth is in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. It's when Saul and Jonathan died in battle against the Philistines that there was at that point chaos. And so the family was going to flee. The nurse, Mephibosheth is about five years old. Uh, the nurse picks up Mephibosheth and tries to run with him, apparently drops him and Scriptures say he was then crippled in his feet or his legs. Now, notice how quick it was. Ziba drew attention. And why uh, to, to um, Mephibosheth being crippled? And why is that? Ziba may be questioning David's intentions here. Do you remember checklist number two or step number two? assess the threat to the throne to deal with it. This could be Ziba saying, uh, hey, David, there is one left, but he's no threat to you. He's no threat to your kingdom because at this time, disabilities were not looked on with favor and not likely that Mephibosheth in his condition would cause a revolt. But look at verses 9, or chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. The king said to him, where is he? Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Makur, the son of Amiel, Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Makur, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face, and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. Okay. So David says, 
Where is he? I, I love that David ignores Ziba's question about him being crippled in his feet and just says, where is he? The answer is that Mephibosheth is in Lodabar. Many commentators translate that as a place of no pasture. He's hiding out. David says, bring him to me. Now, Can you imagine that scenario if you're in Mephibosheth's shoes? You're hiding out. The king's soldiers come. They make it to your front door. They find you. They say, the king wants to see you. What's going on in your minds at that point? Then, the uh, Mephibosheth is brought before King David. Now, it's safe to assume that David's soldiers are standing by with their swords and their spears. wonder if Mephibosheth might have looked over at the spears and thought, oh yeah, those... Those look like the same spears that my good old granddad was chucking at this king who I'm now in front of to kill. So from Mephibosheth's perspective, he's as good as dead. And then, verse 6, what does David say? Mephibosheth, son of, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, again, in case we have forgotten his roots, came to David, fell on his face, and paid homage. So his posture is an appeal for his life to be spared. And David said, Mephibosheth. Okay, now let's pause again. Let's, uh, let's review Mephibosheth's condition. He's, he's hiding out like a fugitive because he's Saul's grandson, which means he would be considered an enemy of the king. He's hiding out in a place, translated, a place of no pasture. He's a fugitive, he's an enemy, he's hiding out, and his very name means Mephibosheth. We know from 1 Chronicles 8.34, after that his name, or that his name actually at some point was changed to mean shameful. So, oftentimes with stories in the Bible, it's always good to ask the question, which person in this story best represents me? And if you or I think, oh, the great and powerful king, we are wrong. We are Mephibosheth. Maybe not physically speaking, but how about spiritually speaking? Apart from the kindness of God, what is our condition? Think about the fall, not of a nurse, but of Adam and Eve. Because of Adam and Eve's sins, we are fugitives. Prior to, I'm talking about apart from the grace of God, we're fugitives running from God. Romans 5 declares that we were enemies, that because of Adam's sin, he brought death and condemnation for all of humanity. Romans 8 declares that apart from the grace of God, that we are hostile in our minds. We will not submit to God. We do not desire to do so. Ephesians 2 declares that we are spiritually dead in our sins and children of wrath. Also, we are in a place like Mephibosheth of no pasture. Think about Adam and Eve 
kicked out of the garden into a cursed world, a world of wilderness, where what reigns is sin and misery. That is our reality apart from Christ. And then think about shame. Mephibosheth's, sorry, Mephibosheth's, I wondered when I would struggle with that, that name. There it was. Um, think about his name actually means shame. Genesis 3 is clear that um, before the fall, Adam and Eve, Genesis 2.28, naked, no shame. After the fall, shame to the point where they hid themselves. And we've been living in shame and hiding ever since. Shame, that powerful feeling of humiliation, of deficit, of worthlessness. We are created according to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, with such great dignity. And yet, because of Genesis 3, our experience is that of depravity in so many ways. The world around us, and it's our own experience. Shame. I'm not good enough. It's that deep-seated fear and belief. I'm just not enough. Shame, that vulnerable fear, if you really know me, you will likely reject me. Shame, if I can personify it, targets our our identity. But it's rooted in false gods. If I am just good-looking enough, strong enough, fit enough, if I am just smart enough, I'm just funny enough, if I'm just wealthy enough, if I'm just powerful enough, if I'm just spiritual enough, if I'm just fill in the blank, I'm just good enough, then I can cover my shame. No, no, you can't, and nor can I. No matter what false gods we put in front of us, no matter what we default to, rather than trusting in God, trust of self, we cannot cover our shame. Okay, Chad, lighten up. No. In order to appreciate the good news, we have to understand just how bad the bad news really is. In order to taste the, the, just the grace of God, the beauty of the gospel, can't taste it if we don't grasp the depth of our condition apart from the loving kindness of God. So if you are not in Christ, if you're not convinced, please know, please hear your desperate condition. If you consider yourself in Christ, please be reminded of the beauty of what Christ has done. What hope did Mephibosheth have? What hope do you have? What hope do I have? The only hope is in a king who will show kindness. And we see this in verse 5. Notice who initiates this restored relationship. It wasn't Mephibosheth who came to the king begging. The king sent and brought him, are the words. 
from his place of hiding. Think about how much more the king's kindness to us. God sent and brought us. He sent his son. could say it this way. This says he sent and brought. God sent and bought. He sent his son to purchase us through his son's own blood. 1 John 1.4, this is love. Not that we loved God first, right? But that he loved us. And who does he love? Sinners? Outcasts, brokenhearted, addicts, prostitutes, the weary, the hopeless, the struggling, the lonely, the shameful, those who know they need grace and mercy, those like Mephibosheth who fall on their face before the king. God's grace doesn't look for what you can bring to the table. You and I don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We can't repay it. We sure did not initiate it. It is the loving kindness of the king. And then listen to these words of hope in verse 7. Do not fear. One of the most repeated commands in scriptures said often to the disciples by Jesus, do not fear. Why? For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Father could be grandfather. It's slang there, but anyway. For the sake of Jonathan. It's interesting. What Mephibosheth did not know, most likely, is that a covenant had already been established previously that would extend grace to him. Between David and his father Jonathan, there was a covenant. It wasn't just about friendship. It was more than friendship. This covenant would result to mercy and grace being extended to Jonathan's family. Therefore, grace and mercy being extended to Mephibosheth. And how much more so How much greater the goodness and the loving kindness of God who what we understand that the Trinity before the creation of the world entered into a covenant. We call it the covenant of redemption. That God would secure people for his household. It's a beautiful truth of the scriptures. How does David show kindness? I'm going to talk about two ways here briefly. Restoring all the land of Saul and eating at his table. So first, in verse 7, it says, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Now, typically, when a new king would acquire or come to the throne, he would acquire all the land of the former king. And, but what does David do? Again, according to verses 9 and 10, David gave Mephibosheth all the land of his grandfather, Saul. So, Mephibosheth's lost inheritance is now regained. And how much more faithful is God? Our, para- our, our paradise, we can think about as how glorious the Garden of Eden would have been, but even more glorious than new heavens and new earth, but lost at Adam's fall. But the one who is even greater than Adam that came bought it back, restored it through the cross, our hope for it, that is. And so with that, 
the glory of the new heavens and new earth. And oftentimes, we probably, if we entertain the idea of the new heavens and new earth and what we think about and how glorious it is, we may think in terms of just the best locations we've been to or just imagining like whether it's a beach or a mountain or give me a good waterfall, right? But the glory of the new heavens and new earth is that it will be the very radiating glory of God that is there. That's actually what is glorious, most glorious about the new heavens and new earth. The second thing, Mephibosheth says, you shall eat at my table always. Four times in this passage, it is mentioned that Mephibosheth will eat at David's table. Three of those times, the word always is used. It's this beautiful picture. Essentially, Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul, will be adopted, is adopted by David. To emphasize it further, verse 13, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, not Lodabar, for he ate always at the king's table. And here's the last words of this section. Now he was lame in both his feet. So I want to be careful not to speculate too far. But we've already been told that Mephibosheth was crippled in his feet. And here it ends with he is lame in both his feet. I think we're to walk away from this story being jolted by the grace, and mercy, and loving kindness of a king. Because from Ziba's perspective, Mephibosheth doesn't belong at David's table and he's no threat. Right? But from the king's perspective, he belongs at his table Always. Always. Now, there's more drama to this story, and I'm going to just touch on it real quick. There's a twist. As you move on, chapter 16, essentially, do this real fast. There's a rebellion against David by his own son, Absalom. So David has to leave Jerusalem. Whoever is for David leaves with him. Mephibosheth does not leave with David. Ziba tells him, essentially, yeah, he's staying back because he's not for you. He's for the other guy, essentially. Gross paraphrase, but we'll keep going. But actually, that's, then there's a twist on that twist. Because what we find in chapter 19 is that when David makes it back into Jerusalem after Absalom dies, Mephibosheth meets him and explains, oh, no, no, no. I was planning to go. Ziba was supposed to saddle my donkey so I could go with you, and he left me. Okay, so with that, David says, all right, um, I'll just give half of your, you know, your, all your inheritance, half to Ziba, half to you. Mephibosheth's response is, he can have it all because I have you. That's what I desire is you. And with that, Verse 21 tells us this, or chapter 21, uh, just I'll give you a line in here. Recounting this story, it says, But the king spared Mephibosheth because of the oath. If I could translate it for us. But the king spared us because of the covenant, the new covenant, the 
the body and blood of Jesus, and at the table in front of us, we see the kindness of this king, don't we? The Bible says that if we're in Christ, we are justified. We are declared righteous. We can think of it this way. I, I have this phrase in my mind. Um, if I've used it tons of times with college students to show the glory of the gospel. It's, it's kind of a fill in the blank. Uh, we're declared righteous in terms of the law, like a courtroom, by a judge. That's the doctrine of justification. But I can't leave that alone. I always have to put the doctrine of adoption with it. We're also declared sons and daughters in terms of love by a father. Right? The beauty of this gospel. Or if I can say it a different way. When I was in seminary, I remember having a conversation with an, uh, she was a, a friend for uh, Tiffany and me. We were um, older lady. Um, she was an adjunct counseling prof. Uh, we got to know her fairly well. I remember the conversation when she said, uh, I don't remember what we we're talking about, but she said, Chad, let me ask you two questions. If you experience uh, the, the guilt of God, what do you need? What does somebody who is guilty before God need? I said, forgiveness. She said, yes. What does somebody who experiences shame, what do they need? I was kind of struck. I didn't know how to answer. I was thinking. And she just walked up to me. She just embraced me. She said, acceptance and love. And that's what we have at the table. As we look at the body and the blood of Christ, what we see is that God sent his son to die for us, to justify us in a courtroom, declared righteous, because his righteousness to us, our sin to him. But that's not it. He also, through Christ, declared us sons and daughters. It is Jesus who took our guilt and our shame, nailed it to the cross. So what's our response? Um, on the floor of presbytery, they asked me another question. What's my favorite Westminster Shorter Catechism question? And I said, here's what it is. This is true. This is my favorite. What are the benefits of our justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, perseverance, uh, Increase of grace and perseverance to the end. That's what the table gives us. All of that because of Christ. So our response, like Mephibosheth, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like I? That was his response. It's a humble posture. And with that, if I can say this, if we have received such grace... Let's continue to really extend that grace to others. It was David who, re who, who received the grace of God, extended that grace to Mephibosheth. And so for us to continue to love one another, right? And we are not a church association. We are a church family. Families fight. Families squabble. 
Families disappoint one another. Families hurt one another. We have to continue to work it out biblically and with loving kindness. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and after giving thanks, said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. After giving thanks, gave it to his disciples. Said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the Apostle Paul adds, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. And what are we declaring? We're declaring it is not about us. It is about his loving kindness extended to us. And let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would meet us at this table in a way that strengthens our faith. Grow us in the knowledge of your glorious grace. Give us a hope that continues to sustain us. Pray that you would take this bread, this juice, that you would set it apart such a way that we know that you are with us, that you would nourish us this morning, grow us in grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This is not the table of just our church, Grace. It is the table of the Lord. He invites all who know themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope, except in his sovereign mercy. And all those who receive and rest upon Christ alone as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners. And all those who desire to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And if this is true of you, I would ask these two sections to come down this aisle these two down this aisle, take a piece of bread, take a cup of juice. Again, feel free to take at the table on the way back to your seat or at your seat. And with this, as you come, keep in mind, the Lord is calling you to come out from Lodabar to the places of no pasture and to come and feast at his table which is a reminder of his faithfulness through the cross. This is a table that grows us in grace because Christ is spiritually with us. And it's a reminder that there is a glorious future ahead. This great banquet with the Lord. I ask you to please come.